Welcome to the Money Insights Podcast, where high income earners come to learn wealth building strategies that will take them from high income to high net worth. With your hosts, financial and wealth building experts, Christian Allen and Rod Zabriskie. Welcome into another episode of the Money Insights Podcast, where we talk all things money and business. My name's Christian Allen. I'm here with my co-host, Rod the Pod Zabriskie. Rod, what's up, my friend? Hey, I'm doing great. And you know what this time of year is? It's March Madness. It is March Madness. And my favorite thing on this is is the whole just, I love March Madness, the brackets. Okay. Bracketology. Have you filled out your bracket yet? I have not yet. Okay, Rod, that's a problem because it's like going. Yeah. Why don't we have a a bracket going on in our amongst our group here? We definitely I'm I'm putting that on uh Tim. Tim, if you're (laughs) listening, uh get a bracket out to us. ASAP. Yeah. Except this isn't gonna come out for a a couple of It'll be after. All right. Well, okay. Anyway, Rod, it's it's a cool time of year. It's a fun time of year because you know you're looking for the Cinderella story. Absolutely. I love the Cinderellas. I know there are those who don't. Blake would say no, it's the tried and true, it's the whatever, but <laughs> but I love the Cinderellas. Well, he's a Michigan State guy. He so is. I don't know if they're they're tried and true. They're I mean, kind of on the fence. But what it what I think what happens is though is is he's he is Michigan State, but that puts him in the Big Ten, which Okay. Okay. He has a little bit of Big Ten pride. Okay, I'm with you. Okay, Rod. Well, the what this reminds me of when we're talking about bracketology, it reminds me of something near and dear to my heart and probably to yours. We like to call it bucketology. Yes, we do. Yeah. Yeah. It was maybe you should at least describe what bucketology is before we get into this. Yeah, we were in the midst of March Madness. This was years ago, and we were doing some retirement income planning for somebody. And we always talk about buckets, right? You have this bucket over here. It's going to do this, et cetera, et cetera. So we just couldn't help ourselves. And in the midst of doing this, we we had multiple buckets that we were putting into this plan, and we just called it Bucketology. Bucketology. That was the birth of Bucketology. Um, (laughs) I that was fun. It was kind of a joke, but like we've used it a lot of times yeah. since. And it's a really powerful, impactful way to think about how money's flowing in and out of our world. So it just made sense. I love bucketology. Um, that was one of our, our better creations. Yeah. Okay, Rod, I don't know that people are that excited to tune in for bucketology, as excited as we are, but I'm hoping they'll be excited because we're going to talk about where to stash your cash. Now, before I do that, Rod, I have to make sure I announce in every episode, the virtual summit coming up on May the 4th. Yes, I almost forgot the date, but then I remembered it's my mom's birthday. Can't forget it. May 4th. uh, We're going to have the virtual summit. We've got a really great lineup of speakers. We've talked about it over and over, but uh, you can go to tell them the website to go to Rod. Yeah. M I virtual summit.com. I always forget it. M I virtual summit.com. That has that's like the landing page where you can buy tickets, you can check out the speaker lineup and get a feel for what it's all about. Absolutely. Okay, Rod, let's get into the topic for today. Our topic is where to stash your cash. And this was inspired by the recent banking events that have been taking place. Yeah. So um I got a I got a an email just recently, and it was basically like 
what's more, what's safer, banks or life insurance companies? Mm -hmm. And so the combination of those things made me think like, this is probably a good topic to hit on right now for a couple of reasons, right? One, it's difficult to find all the things that we want in a place to hold our liquid, you know, reserves. Yeah. And then number two, like there's this whole, you know, potential banking crisis. There's at least a mild banking crisis happening. Mm -hmm. And so we have to be asking ourselves, is our money safe if we have it sitting in the bank? Yeah. Okay. So Rod, why don't you kick us off by talking about the problem or like kind of helping us understand what's the issue that we're trying to deal with? Yeah. Would we have this cash that we need to have on the sideline, right? Um, whether it be emergency funds, whether it be money that we're, we will be getting into our investments. I just don't have opportunities now, et cetera. But, so we need to keep it somewhere. Well, what do I, what am I looking for when I put it there? Well, number one, I need it to keep me at least up with inflation. Mm -mm. And that's a difficult thing to find these days, especially as the Fed continues to raise interest rates, right? Right. Yeah, they're trying to raise them to to stave off what we've experienced as you know double digit inflation, and it's, it's a huge problem, right? We're we're Can losing value you? the longer we have it sitting in uh, somewhere where it's just not earning anything. And it's really exciting to see our bank account go up to, you know, 1.5% or whatever. Amazing. But when you contrast that with the, you know, what, what I don't remember the number, 6 to 8% inflation, mm -hmm. like, you know, that's a real problem. Absolutely. Yep. Okay. So inflation is a huge issue. What else are we, what else do we need in our liquid money? Yeah. Cause then you, you could say, oh, well, what if I go put it somewhere where I, I can just get that growth? right? Get enough growth to, to keep up with inflation. Well, then the challenge becomes the, the next two things. I, I also need it where I, it is liquid. I can get at when I, when I need it. And second, where it's safe. Cause I don't okay. want to be losing the value. If I put it somewhere where I can get those returns, but I'm also putting it at risk of losses. And let, again, let's say a year ago, I, I was worried about inflation. So I was like, well, the stock market is the right place to put my money. Cause then I'll grow as the stocks grow. Well, yeah. Probably didn't oh, turn out so easy. well for you, right? So Ugh, those last couple there. years, Rod, it's been a little brutal. Yeah, I was fortunate to get into the run. Uh huh. I, I had a nice run up, but can I just tell you, most of that run up has gone out the window. Gone. So you're right. If you put your money there, thinking, "Okay, I want to keep pace with inflation," it may still work over the long term, potentially. Yeah. yeah. But as of right now, it's a little discouraging. Absolutely. But and so like wouldn't it be better if we didn't have to go through the the roller coaster ride if we could just find somewhere where we knew it was going to be consistent, safe, predictable, liquid, all the things that we're looking for? Yeah. That sounds amazing. Yeah, I want that spot. I do too. Okay. Okay, so uh where do we can we actually, you know what, Rob, let's not going to let's not talk right now about where we can go to get that. Let's okay. just let's just move to a conversation about banks and life insurance companies and the way that they foundationally run their businesses. Okay. Let's start there. Start well, with the reserves. Yeah, let's start with reserves, uh, which basically just means like how much cash does, a, does the bank slash does the life insurance company have to keep on hand that they have ready access to? On the bank side, it's about 10%. Okay. For the life insurance companies, about it's about one hundred and ten percent. Okay, wait, wait. I feel wait, like there's back a difference. Up, back here. up. That was like 
that must be a typo or uh, <laughs> you you must have misspoke because if we're going to compare the safety of two like the foundation of these two organizations mm -hmm. like I don't know if there's anything else we need to say, right? Okay, so you just told me though, 110%, which means that when I put a dollar into the life insurance company, they've got to carry a dollar and 10, a dollar yeah. 10. Yeah, or okay. stated another way, for every obligation they have to policyholders, they have to keep, for every dollar of obligation, they have to keep a dollar 10 in reserves. That's wild. That, again, that is foundationally incredibly different. I, and I keep saying have to, the, the regulations around this, and I don't know what the exact number is, what the regulation says they have to have, but the types of companies we work with, A-rated, a lot of them mutual companies, keep even more than that. You know, you, we hear $1.13, $1.14 is pretty common. So Yeah. Yep. Okay. So from a reserve standpoint, it's pretty clear life insurance companies are, are probably safer if you were just to look again at their the foundation of what they are, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And where my money's at. Like, just mathematically, you know, if if I, if they only have 10 cents on the dollar available and things go, you know, wonky, then I, I don't, I can't feel really confident that I'm going to get, but guess what, Rod? I don't have to because I have an option. I have the FDIC, which can come in and take care of all that stuff. That's We're right. About the FDIC in a second. Okay. So Rod, before we do that though, all right, talk about the way that banks and insurance companies loan money. Okay. Th and this goes back to the whole reserve difference, right? With banks, let's say I, as a, as a depositor, I put money into my account with the bank. Well, it doesn't just sit there. They'll take it and they'll lend that out, but not only once I call it fractional reserve banking, where I, where they can take that dollar and go out and lend it out to multiple people. Right. So they're, they're carrying huge amounts of leverage in what they do. And the hope and, and kind of what, what they're planning for is, is this 10% reserve will give them the, the cushion that they need so that they can still service people when they're coming to take withdrawals out of their accounts. So they still have the money that they can do this. But uh, the hope is that it does, it, they don't get too many of those. If they have too many people coming in at the same time to take their money, well, they don't have it all, right? Even though your account balance shows XYZ when you look on your online account, they don't have just all that money sitting in the vault waiting for you to come in and, and take it out. They don't? They don't. Holy smokes. That, that's a little unsettling, Rod. I just always assumed that that big vault in the back <laughs> was just carrying. Okay, so we're not on the gold standard. Even the that's banks right. certainly are not on the gold standard. Okay, so that's, a, that's an important point. Um, Rod, talk a little bit about, this is an interesting point. This This idea of, where banks like to stash their cash. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when they are putting it in a place where they, again, going back to the, the problem, right? In inflation protection, liquidity and safety, this, they need it. Well, what's interesting is these, these banks actually use life insurance policies as a major portion of their, they call it the tier one capital, the, the most, you know, secure places to put money it's with life insurance companies with life insurance contracts. So yeah, more specifically what they're doing is, is they're setting up policies where the executives are the insureds, but the actual asset, the, the cash value of the policy is an actual asset of the bank. So it's on their balance sheet and 
uh, and it creates some of that safety and liquidity and the very things we've been talking about for the banks. Okay, Rod, we're going to switch gears just a little bit. And I want to talk about FDIC. Mm -hmm. And I want to compare and contrast that with something that a lot of people won't even know of. And it's called the State Guarantee Association, which, yeah. again, like they're, they're, they're very different. But in a lot of ways, they serve a very similar role. Okay, sure. so with the FDIC, I'm going to let you talk about it in a sec. But like, that's why people have confidence that despite this idea of fractional reserve banking, which again, mm -hmm. most people probably don't realize how banking works anyway. They just know that if a, if a bank's FDIC insured, then they feel a lot safer about putting their money there. Yeah. Even if the bank okay. fails, they're going to be able to get their money back. Yeah. Okay. So talk about right. what the FDIC does and where it comes from. Okay, and we have a great uh, case study. You you kind of uh, implied this a little earlier about with what's going on with the banks. Well, Silicon Valley Bank uh, failed recently, 16th largest bank in the country at the time. Surprising, right? M maybe surprising, maybe not surprising, but but uh, basically what happened is they had people coming in and, and trying to get their money. So much so that they had to start tapping into and, and selling off these bonds that they have. Well, the problem with that is that when they bought those bonds a, a year ago, two years ago, five years ago, uh, interest rates were obviously much lower. Well, the way a bond works, the value of a bond works is if, or as interest rates go up, the value of the bond goes down because if they, let's say the bond is paying at 2% and now uh, you could go and get a new bond for 4%. Well, why would someone buy a 2% bond from you? You're selling it secondhand. Why would they come buy it for you if they can go get the 4%? Well, they would only do that if you sold it to them at a discount. So there's there's a relationship between rising interest rates and then falling, falling value of the bonds. Well, the bank would rather have not had to sell bonds, but they had so many... Uh, withdrawals from accounts that they had to start selling those bonds. And, and one thing that I saw uh, that I read about said that they lost $1.6 billion in the sale of these bonds as they were, you know, trying to meet people's liquidity needs. Hmm. Big deal, yeah, right? That's wild. Yep, so that's, that's ultimately wild. what, what led to, to the problem. Now getting back to your question with the FDIC. So um, the, the kind of sequence of events that happened is, they number one announced that they're going to have to go out and raise a whole bunch of capital to correct this problem that they were having. And then number two, the, the president of the bank sent out a tweet saying, everything's good here. Nothing to worry about. As long as we have people's confidence, then, then we'll be good. And that was really pretty much the, the beginning of the end because within hours uh, the fed came in the, you know, the feds came in and they uh, took over the bank. So that's the FDIC. The FDIC came in, took over the bank. And now they kind of had to temporarily freeze any flow of cash. They formed an, actually a new bank to, to kind of take over those assets. And, and uh, through that new bank, getting people's money back. Now with the FDIC, as I'm sure many people know, um, I'm, I'm safe, right? I'm, I'm, it's federally backed, uh, you know, that my deposits there up to $250,000. So yep. that's what the FDIC has been working on over the last few weeks, 
uh, with Silicon Valley Bank is taking yeah. over and then getting people their cash. Okay. So the FDIC at its core, it's called the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, yep. which basically means that it's there to insure people's deposits. This is what pe this is this is what gives us confidence to put money in the banks. Um, we just know that you know we've got that backing. Okay, the insurance world has something similar, but different. It's yeah. a little bit more altruistic. I don't know if that's the right word, <laughs> but it's it's a little bit more like it just makes more sense to be totally honest with you. Like it, yeah. it's more logical more mathematical. So talk a little bit about the state guarantee association, which is basically the way that life insurance companies back up their money. Yeah. So in this, we, we talked about how it's the, actually the federal government backing up your bank accounts on the life insurance side, the backing up comes from the industry as a whole. So in other words, we're in the state of Utah, all insurance companies that do business in the state of Utah are part of the state Guarantee Association of Utah, which just means that if there's an individual bank, or sorry, in this case, individual insurance company who is, uh, you know, getting in trouble, then this state guarantee association comes in and does pretty much what I just described with the FDIC. They'll create a, a separate company to take over the assets and and kind of carry out the the contracts. That are there and from state to state the actual maximum number differs but again it's going to be in the same ballpark 200 250 is pretty common for for these states the guarantee associations to kind of back up your accounts okay so this is interesting though and we're, we're going to talk about what we've seen when yeah. both life insurance companies and banks get into trouble but let's just say theoretically rod you've got a state like ours like utah is there a lot of life insurance companies here? What is there a lot of insurance companies here to back it up? I don't know. There are. Yeah. So, and, and it's all the, all the companies, you know, right. <clears throat> Which is pretty common, almost without exception. The big, are you big saying, are you saying, sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, Rob, but I want to clarify this. You're saying that any company that does business in the state of Utah. Yes. Okay. And that I think is important clarification because yes. the way it, it kind of came out initially was like, Oh, it, you know, the, the insurance companies in that state will, oh, gotcha. the point, the point is the insurance companies are in almost all states, yes. right? Yep. So any of the companies that you're familiar with, all of the massive companies, they pool their money together to then help overcome this because they're part of like, every state's guarantee association. Right. Yeah. Okay. okay. And okay. and so what's interesting about that is if you think about just insurance as a whole, what, what are insurance companies doing? They're creating a large risk pool because not everybody, not every 48 year old is going to die, but Rod might, right? I want to have a life insurance policy. So, so the people I love are taken care of. If something happens to me, um, and so even within an, within an a single insurance company, they have a large risk pool, right? But then when you spread that among all of the companies, then it goes much deeper. And, and like you said earlier, it, it just makes sense that that's where the backup happens because that's what they do. That's their business. Okay, quick recap here then. So we know that banks are dealing on high amounts of leverage. And we know that life insurance companies are dealing with high amounts of excess capital. 
Mm -hmm. right? So at, at that foundational level, that feels pretty comfortable, right? I, yeah. I would just say that's pretty easy to say that my money's safer inside of an insurance and life insurance company. Now, the next step then is we have this FDIC and we have the Guarantee Association. So yeah. on one side, the federal government, which by the way, does have a generally a pretty strong track record. However, there have been some questionable, questionable moments in the banking world and situations that were federally bad. Okay, Rod, so let's talk about what happens when a bank gets into trouble and maybe you can continue to use Silicon Valley Bank as the example or the case study since it's so fresh in our minds. Yeah, well, I mean, Silicon Valley Bank goes away. It no longer will exist, right? Okay, sorry, I was probably not very clear. I, I was just realizing because when you went and you described it, like you did a pretty good job of describing it. Let me just throw out a problem that just keeps coming to my mind. Okay. Let's just say you're a high income earning individual. Like that's the majority of the people that we work with. Mm -hmm. The people that are listening to this podcast are likely in that camp. Um, it's not uncommon for us to talk to people who have large, large amounts of cash yeah. in bank accounts. Rod, I have large amounts of cash in bank accounts that would well surpass the FDIC line and so the, the question I'm, I guess I'm getting at is like, should I feel safe? Well, all I can tell you is this. If I was, if I was at the Silicon Valley bank and I had, you know, $1.5 million of cash in a bank and 250,000 of it's being, you know, guaranteed, then th that's pretty ugly, right? Yeah. So people so are losing real money. Right. So basically what it comes back to is now with this newly formed bank that the FDIC just created, now they're going to basically sort it out and say, okay, the the federal government will ensure this much that you get back. Great. But there are assets. There are things sure. you know that, that they're going to be able to sort with, but but it's still going to be cents on the dollar, right? If they yeah. if they were okay, then they wouldn't have had the wouldn't have had to shut the doors. Yep. At the end of the day, they lost this 160, you know, billion dollars or whatever you said that number was. Okay. Um okay, maybe I'm maybe I'm confusing that with a different number. Okay, so we know that the FDIC the FDIC steps in when banks get in trouble and we have seen an example of that. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out as mm -hmm. time goes on. That's kind of the most recent example. Uh, but we have another example. Historically, we have something called savings and loans. Now, if you're probably under 40, you may or may not even know what savings and loans is. I can be being totally honest. I did not know that terminology. The only reason I know it is because I'm in this industry. So I learned it when I was in my 20s. Um, but like was totally unaware of this thing that happened in the past. Rod, why don't you kind of just describe a little bit of what this whole savings and loan crisis was all about? Yeah, well, savings and loans, just to clarify what, what those were, uh, it was basically like a bank. In the yeah, same way as we've described, people make deposits and then they go out and, and they you know make mortgages to, to homeowners. It was in a different category though. And so there were... Uh, specific laws created around savings and loans that didn't apply to banks or credit unions. Specifically in the 70s, there as and, and 80s, as interest rates were going higher, there were state laws in place that uh, restricted how high of an interest rate a savings and loan could charge. So 
just hypothetically, they they would otherwise charge, let's say it was 9% on a new mortgage, but they were restricted and they couldn't charge any more than, again, the state would have decided what that number was, but let's just say it was 5%. So but that would clearly impact your your comfort level in making those loans, but that's what you do. Like that's what your charter is. If you're a savings and loan is to take the deposits and go out and, and lend those make mortgages for people who are buying a home. So, and there, I'm, I'm oversimplifying it, but, but that was an example of the kind of thing that happened that started to lead to them getting into financial trouble. Okay. And then the crisis became massive, like yep. probably the biggest banking crisis. Uh, maybe, I, I guess I say that maybe 2008, but certainly from before 2008, it would have been the biggest banking crisis. And basically what happened is you had this federal, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word for it, but it's a, it was a federal grouping of people that made up this federal uh, savings and loans association. Mm -hmm. And about a third of those banks just failed completely, were wiped out. So you yeah. had like 3,000 and some change and a thousand of those banks just, just completely failed. So it was massive losses to the tune of 160 billion dollars rod okay so here's yeah. what's interesting about that those losses ended up going on the backs of guess who the taxpayers taxpayers so to put that into perspective the savings and loans institutions paid back 28 billion dollars taxpayers paid back 132 billion dollars so again like the point here is just to suggest that when things do go bad in the banking world like they've gone pretty it's been pretty right, right. we right. really want to we really want to be thoughtful about how much money we're going to stick in in the bank and certainly it makes me think not going to have any more than that two hundred fifty thousand dollar number mm -hmm. in a single account just because you know when things go wrong they really go wrong yeah yeah certainly absolutely something to be aware of okay rod let's talk about life insurance companies going under we have yeah. a couple of examples of this. Um, we have AIG as that's kind of the one that most people uh, are aware of because it was most recent, but mm -hmm. maybe talk a little bit about what we've seen happen when uh, life insurance companies run into trouble. Yeah. So the, I think the first thing to talk about is like with these state guarantee associations, that's an example of the industry kind of covering its own, so to speak in the example of AIG, that's an anomaly. Because, and this was in 2008, uh, they had, well, um, among all of the other financial institutions that got into trouble, they had all these mortgage-backed securities. They were overly uh, leaning too heavily on that side. Had way too many uh, on that of their on their assets. Try that sentence again. They Rod. had way too many of those on their assets. Okay, way too so, many of what on their assets, Rod? Okay, let's so, go back a little bit further. Yeah, with. <laughs> Um, so the problem that AIG ran into in 2008 is they had a ton of mortgage-backed securities on their balance sheet. And as we know, uh, companies who were like that, they, they ran in trouble. And, and so AIG, were they, were they going to actually fail? It's hard to say for sure because what the federal government decided is that they were, quote-unquote, too large to fail. Too right? big to fail. Yep. So, they, so they swooped in. In, inserted some capital as they did with a lot of a lot of American companies and kind of 
bore them Bail up them so that they could they could carry on. So then what happened is that bailed them out, right? And they were able to pay all that back, like like a lot of the companies, the okay, you know, so GM and all, and all that. Let's but play this out a little bit. Yeah, yeah, let's play this out. So so 2008 comes, AIG ends up, they're, they're in financial distress at the very least because they have all these mortgage-backed securities, mm-hmm. right? And of course, the mortgage-backed, that was the whole crisis then. So um, the federal government comes in and says, hey, we can't have this thing happening because this was like the largest life insurance company. And and I actually, I shouldn't even say life insurance company, the largest insurance company. Yeah. They were insuring many, many different lines of insurance uh, all over the world, right? Yep. So, okay. So because of that, and be, just because of the their share of insurance that's been placed in the world, the the federal government said like, we can't have that. That'll be, that would be too traumatizing for the economy. It mm-hmm. comes in, infuses cash that we don't actually have, right? But can make up out of thin air. Uh-huh. And by doing that, the uh, AIG gets back on their feet. They then repay the money. I think it was over like a period of five to seven years that they yeah. repaid all of the money. But but can I just say that's an entirely different still. The fact that they actually repaid the money instead of having the taxpayers pay all that money back. Right. Well, here's the deal. With Again, it goes back to the, the foundational mechanics of how these companies work. If I've got a ton more in reserve then I'm going to be in a much better position to pay back people, even if I run into trouble, right? Yeah. Anyway, interesting thought. Okay, so we have AIG there. That was a huge issue. So what's interesting is, is if you were to actually go to uh, a state guarantee association and look at a, a list of, hey, what what insurance companies have had to be, you know, I, I, again, I'm not even going to use it. Yeah, and, and ultimately it wasn't even a bailout because usually what happens is, uh, they show up on that list. Okay, we're concerned about this company for for these reasons, and then they they just get bought out from a larger life insurance company. So yeah, and historically, that that's just times. Yeah. So if you look and you say, okay, well, uh, the total number of life insurance companies is smaller today than it was twenty years ago or whatever. Well, in in almost all of those cases, there were it was they were just bought out by a larger company, and so what that means is that the actual insurance contracts just carried on in the same way as, as they were already. And and there was an example back in 1991 uh, where this happened. And what's interesting is, is the guaranteed interest rate on the, on the insurance policies that they had on their books was higher than the guarantees that the, the company that ended up buying them out offered on theirs but they kept the contracts. They didn't change them. They didn't renegotiate them. They didn't, they didn't do anything other than continue on with the contracts as they were. So they were paying, literally paying out higher guaranteed rates on this book of business that came from this former company that they bought out than the interest rates that they were paying on, on the stuff there. But again, they, it was contractual. They just carried on the contracts. Yeah. And I, and I think like, that's obviously an anomaly. What I've seen sure. typically happen is insurance companies that get bought out end up they do deliver on the promise actually before i go into that route i just want to make a point here on aig we didn't emphasize the fact that because we were wanting to compare life insurance companies versus banks 
AIG is not just a life insurance company, right? A big portion of theirs is on the property and casualty and other right. lines of insurance. But I do want to just mention that it's important. It's important to mention that the life insurance side of AIG did not have problems. That book was True. it was really in a good place. The problem was again in the backline investments. Now that can be the case with any company, right? So we have so that's kind of the the critical thing to be thinking about. But sure. okay, okay, so from what I've seen, and I have seen this multiple times, I can think of four or five. Um, Canada Life comes to mind. Uh, Canada Life was a bit was a good mutual life insurance company, and when they went out of business, the I, I can't remember which company ended up buying them out but they bought them out and basically they delivered the guarantees now they weren't as competitive anymore and that and i think that's more typically what happens mm -hmm. so if i was expecting like let's just say something happened with uh one of the life insurance companies that we have a lot of money with if somebody another company bought them out i would expect that it would go to that other company and that other company would at least deliver on the guarantee whatever that mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. Now, they may decide to be more competitive and do more than that, but typically over time, they'll lower it down to the guarantee and you'll have the opportunity to move. But let's contrast that with the, op the, op the other option, which is potentially just losing the money entirely. Right. 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 If Again, if I'm a bank and I only have 10 cents on the dollar available, where's it going to come from? Well, it's going to come from the federal government. Federal government says we'll go to 250, but above and beyond that, we're out. Mm -hmm. Well, and then you have to ask yourself the question, like, how confident are we in the long term viability of the FDIC, knowing that it's just money that's being printed? It's not real. Right. And like you said, it, it, it does go back to the taxpayers, which it's going to anyway. But then you say, OK, well, depending on how many banks and how in, in how uh, like a small proximity of time fail, are there enough resources and like you said, that just go print it. Either way, we we bear it, right? Either it's because we paid the tax and they're using it that way, or it's because they're printing it and enforcing inflation. Kind of go in the other direction with the Fed. There's another issue that we need to consider, Rod. Okay. We need to consider the fact that interest rates are rising today. And mm -hmm. therefore, I can go and take my money and put it in a, you know, a savings account that's getting three or three, let's say 3%. Okay. That historically hasn't been available to me. So here's the question then is using a life. And, and of course, the way we do, we talk about it is these overfunded whole life insurance policies specific. It, it can be whole life. It could be index universal life. Like, but, but at the end mm -hmm. of the day, it's, it's money that's being driven into the cash value, minimizing costs of the policy, maximizing the cash. The question is Rod, can I still expect to, outpace outperform what i'm seeing from you know now that interest rates have increased and and maybe even to take that to the next step if they keep going up so if i can get the three three and a half percent in the money market right now and the fed's going to keep pushing up interest rates then what if it gets to a place because we talk about being able to produce roughly a five percent net return inside of the policy well, what if all of a sudden money markets go up and they're at 5%? Then you say, well, wh wh which one do you want? Okay. Well, I think hopefully we've answered a, to a degree that question just because of the whole difference between FDIC and and uh, banks versus life insurance companies, et cetera, right? Just the, the level of confidence, safety that I feel. 
Uh, so that by itself, if, if even if they're equal, pushes me towards life insurance. But even you know, setting that aside, number one, I would say the when we talk about that that five percent long term return, again, it's long term, right? And the in the actual interest rates have fluctuated dramatically, you know, over the last fifteen years, especially. Uh, so that money market was paying, you know, two percent a year ago. It may be at five percent now. What's it going to be in the future? We don't know, obviously, but but that's a problem, right? Because it's going to fluctuate much more dramatically than it would on the life insurance policy. And then the other, maybe the the larger uh, benefit that I have on the life insurance side is that that five percent that we talk about is income tax free. So. You know, if, if I get the five percent on the on the money market, but then I get a ten ninety nine at the end of the year that says, "Hey, you have to pay tax on this," then obviously that drives the actual return down, or maybe set another way, depending on my tax bracket, I might have to earn seven eight percent in a taxable place to match the five percent tax free. Yeah, and okay, so from just a pure return standpoint, what you're suggesting is. Will still likely outperform, and and I will say this: I've I've said this a hundred times. Life insurance companies are meant to outperform fixed interest rates, right? Mm-hmm. Like banks specifically, because mm-hmm. if they didn't, if the cash value didn't outperform a typical bank, a, particularly over the long term, nobody would put their money there, right? Yeah. So let's just think about how this has played out. If we look over the last twenty years, interest rates have just taken a, a nosedive. And yet we have been able to confidently say, like, again, for the last decade, while interest mm-hmm. rates continue to go down, we have still been able to confidently say that we can produce a five plus percent net tax-free return. And so, like you said, I think the, I think that the core knowing that there's uh, more consistency there, you know, that helps a whole lot. Okay. Um, I'm trying to decide, Rod, is there anything else that we need to hit on as it relates to this? I think that's hit, all I okay. had in mind. Okay, so we we hit on indirectly all of these issues, right? We talked about inflation. Well, so let's just clarify it. Inflation, I think we can we can feel um, adequate. Actually, you know what we didn't talk about, Rod, is inflation and as inflation as it relates to money that's sitting in a life insurance policy. So let's just say theoretically that life ins- that I got a lot. I'm I'm on board with your idea that life insurance is probably a better place to stash cash. Mm-hmm. Um, but what happens if inflation continues to go up and my, you know, let's say it's interest rates are seven, eight, nine percent. You're telling me I'm getting five. What do I do then? Yeah, great question. That five percent that we talk about has been driven by where interest rates have been when they were really low. And what what happened is the life insurance companies were paying out right around six percent total between the guaranteed interest rate and the dividend. and the net cost over a long period of time is about 1%. So that's that's how we're getting to the 5%. Well, as interest rates are going up and that pushes the dividend rate higher on the whole life policy, then you would your your actual return would go up as well. So okay. if if in the long run my average uh credit to my account, you know, with the guarantee plus the dividend, let's just say it's 7% on average over the next, whatever, 10, 15, 20 years, then seven minus one, my average would actually be more like 6% that I would expect to have 
uh, for my net return. Okay, so one of the docs, the documents we used to like throw up on the screen when we were meeting with clients was a dividend history yeah. um, of one of the insurance companies. And they all look, they all look fairly similar, but they were, it's telling because what we, what we were looking at was interest rates in the double digits in the late eighties and early nineties. And then of course, as interest rates fell, they started to fall with it. But what you're suggesting yeah. is that, and, and right now we're talking about specifically whole life insurance as a yeah. place to stash cash, because that's the, the most safe, the, the safest way to do it. Um, but it's driven by your guaranteed interest rate and then the dividend. Again, technically not guaranteed, but but it is driven by partially by what's happening happening in the insurance company's investments, right. right? And as they're able to generate higher returns, they then have to pass that. They do pass that along to the policyholders because we're we're talking about mu. You know what? I probably should have clarified, Rod. I probably should have clarified that we love to use longstanding mutual companies that have been around for. A couple hundred years now i think the stuff that we've talked about applies across the board it does for all insurance companies but like my confidence goes up another notch when i'm talking about these companies that have this track record of being around since the great depression and, and being the you know the catalyst to helping the economy move through the great depression like right. i think about that and it's pretty incredible what they've done and, and from my perspective the reason that it's happened that way is because it's built on like a strong foundation. Like I, I love the idea of being able to use leverage, right? So if mm -hmm. I'm a bank, I can be highly, highly profitable, but I'm also running into a situation where I could lose money. And when I lose, I can lose bigger. That's Absolutely. how leverage works. Anyway, those are kind of some, some concluding thoughts I have. Do you want to say anything before we call it? I, yeah, I think that's a, a critical point about the difference between mutual and stock companies uh, because mutual companies do just tend to be more steady and and predictable, consistent. Uh, you mentioned the Great Depression, but even even long before then, right? Um, a lot of the companies we use were were formed in the 1840s, 50s, 60s, uh, so pre Civil War, and uh, and they just again they have a great track record. So it we just have a lot of confidence. It, it, and maybe to say it a different way, if the economy just went really bad. I think those mutual life insurance companies would be like the last one standing. Yeah. I love, and, and again, the balance sheet says it all. Right. There's no other companies just in general that carry really that have to carry so much in reserve. And so that creates this really unique opportunity. Uh, okay. Well, this has been fun. I hope Rod, that it's pretty clear. Like we realize you can't just put every dollar into life insurance companies. There's, and nor would we suggest that that's the way to do it. But what we are suggesting is that um, it might make more sense to carry large piles of cash in life insurance, especially over the long term. Then it's going to make sense to do to to hold that same money in the bank account. Agreed. Pretty simple. All right, Rod, it's been tons of fun. Um, thanks everybody for listening to us and we will see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Money Insights Podcast. To learn more about the financial and business strategies discussed in this show, please visit moneyinsights.net. The views and opinions expressed on the Money Insights Podcast are not intended to be individual financial, tax, or legal advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making financial decisions. 
And if you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. This will help others find the show and learn wealth building strategies for themselves. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll catch you in the next episode.